We're going to continue our study uh, in 1 Corinthians this morning. Last week, our pastor uh, was in, uh, finished up chapter 8. So if you have uh, your Bible, you can turn it on or you can open it up and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And uh, two quick things before uh, I start. Uh, two things that always jump out. Uh, it's always amazing. I'm always amazed uh, in Sunday school this morning how consistent the Word of God is. It shouldn't amaze me, but it does. And how what we talked about there uh, just kind of ties right into what we're going to talk about this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's, uh, it's always amazing to me. The other thing is more of a wish, and that is, uh, I wish we had about three or four hours. Uh, we don't, and I won't do that to you, but we could. There's a whole lot of fascinating history to know about Corinth, the, the community, the culture, the church. There's so much that we could cover, even though we don't have time to cover everything. I do feel like we need to cover a couple of quick uh, things with regards to the, the backstory, if you will, because I think the more that we know about the backstory uh, in any uh, Bible book, any Bible study, but especially here, the more we know, the more what Paul wrote leaps out and makes sense to us. And so the city of Corinth, if you don't know, was a very busy uh, strategically located port city. By the time Paul got there, it was already an ancient city, some eight or nine hundred years old by that time and had changed hands, but it was a very strategic port city that handled trade between Asia and Rome back and forth. And uh, because of that, it was a melting pot of all of the, the world at that time, the world's cultures and religions. Uh, and there were no Christians before Paul arrived. So it was everything else that you can imagine under the sun was there. If you could take, for example, today the cities of Hong Kong and Mecca and New York and New Orleans and maybe mix in a little bit of Las Vegas, then you, you might get an idea of what the culture of Corinth was like. Not in terms of the number of people. It wasn't quite that big, but it was big and it was that kind of culture. Very pagan, uh, very, very worldly as, far, as much as you can get. So Paul gets there. He spends the first time 18 months. He plants the church and he spends 18 months with them the first time, uh, teaching them, discipling them, helping them to be established in the faith. Now, after his departure is when the trouble began. So after Paul's departure the first time, the, the, the pagan roots of many of the members kind of crept back in. The culture crept back in to uh, the church and they developed, we've read through some of this already in the first eight chapters, they developed cliques, they developed favorites, they divided over those cliques and favorites, they, they absolutely ruined the, the, the love feast, we'll see that coming up in chapter 11 um, soon, and the repercussions of that and what they did there was a lot of them were killed. God killed them. They were sick. A lot of them were sick, and a lot of them were killed because of what they did to the Lord's table and how they turned that into a, drunk, uh, a drunken uh, uh, festival, I guess you could call it, where they excluded the more needy members and it turned into something gross. 
there, we've already looked at uh, the gross sexual misconduct going on in the church. Uh, and as I said, many of the members had become sick. Many of them had uh, uh, died due to their flagrant sins. And, and then there are these, these questions about how, how do we jive what we learned from you, Paul, the last 18 months with everything else that we know to be true, all of these other realities uh, in, our, in our world and our culture, and how, do, how does that look? In other words, how do we do love? We're supposed to love our neighbor. We learned about that in chapter 8. We're supposed to uh, sacrifice ourselves for their sake, for the weaker brother to not offend. But how do we do that? And so we get to, to chapter 9. Uh, and we know that the, the first letter to Corinth from Paul was a, a, a bunch, there were a bunch of letters. Uh, the Corinthian church wrote Paul a letter asking him several questions. We know that Paul responded back. That's what we think is our first Corinthians. And there were other letters back and forth. We have two of them in our Bible, first and second Corinthians. We don't have all of them, but we can still kind of glean what was in those letters and what was in that first letter from them to him, kind of like the same way we would if we were riding a car and if I'm riding with Teresa and she's on the phone, I can hear one side of that phone conversation. We can, we can do that here. And we know or have a pretty good idea of most of what was in a lot of those letters and determine what we need to determine from those. And so the purpose of, of all of the letters was to address questions, uh, to, for Paul to address bad news that he had received about the church in Corinth, to address problems, they, the problems that we've read about and talked about and learned about that they were facing, and, and to address challenges against Paul and his authority himself. And here's the main thing about all of this. The issues dealt with by Paul in the Corinthian church, they're still issues today very much applicable to us today. And so Paul's answers to the Corinthians are just as much for us today as they were to the Corinthian church when he wrote this letter to them all these centuries ago. So as we've already seen in the first eight chapters, and as we'll see here in chapter nine, there is some very practical application for us in these pages, in these chapters, in these verses. And so chapter 8 was the what. The what is uh, we are to love God, love your neighbor. Chapter 9 is the how. Paul gives himself as none other as a case study as to how do, we, how do we love one another. And so my hope and my prayer for you this morning as you hear this message is that you would have some insight from Paul about how to do love, so to speak. And, and it has a lot to do with our Christian liberty. So as you're doing love and loving others, how do you balance that with your Christian liberty that you have in Christ? But especially, how do you do that as you encounter people in your life that are hard to love? All right, we talked about that this morning, right, in Sunday school. What about the ones that are difficult to love? So I want to... Go through chapter 9 with you. If you have your copy of the Word, I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to go through the whole chapter, and then we'll see what we can glean from there. Verse 1, Paul writing. He says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? 
Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? And that we, for Paul here, by the way, is him and Barnabas. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Who is Peter? Verse 6. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who, at any time, serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake, it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have, the, have their share from the altar? Do so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. I'm not writing these so that I will be done. Uh, let's see. Sorry. I, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done. So in my case, for it will be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of for I am under compulsion for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this voluntarily. I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge. So as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, so that uh, though not being, under, uh, not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without law, the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race but only, uh, only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. 
If you look, the verse numbers came later, not when Paul didn't write this. He wrote a letter. There weren't verses when he wrote it. But for us, there's 27 verses. 27 verses in chapter 9. And if you were counting, or you go back and count, Paul asked 19 questions in those 27 verses. Four questions and verse 1 alone. All four are rhetorical. Most of the others are rhetorical, all with an obvious answer. And verse 1, the four questions, all rhetorical, all with obvious uh, answers. The answer being yes. And all were to reinforce Paul's position of authority as an apostle. So the challenge from the Corinthian church was something like this. Paul's not, in a legitimate, he's not a legitimate apostle. And because Paul's not a legitimate apostle, Corinth, the church in Corinth, is not a legitimate church. And since the church in Corinth is not legitimate because Paul's not legitimate, then none of you are really saved. And since that's the case, I'm in charge. And here's the reality, and here's the truth. And so then they developed division that way. So the attempt was to unravel the authority from the top down and then divide and conquer and take uh, control and struggle for control. And part of the problem for the church in Corinth was that Paul, in some ways, didn't really behave like the other apostles. He didn't do things the way the other apostles did all the time. And that fact gave credibility to the argument against Paul. And so they write him this letter, and they ask him some questions, some of which involve how to do love and how to do certain things and doctrinal questions, but some were personal against Paul. And Paul responds in chapter 9, and, and in specifically starting around verse 7, for seven or eight verses, Paul basically says this to them, paraphrasing. He says, your, your, your premise is off. Your your perspective is off base. Your focus is on the wrong thing. And so in chapter 9, he starts off by defending his apostleship. He says, I'm an apostle. Obviously, you're proof of that fact. You, first and foremost, the fact that you exist as a church is proof. And then he follows in the rest of that chapter we just read with a whole list of rhetorical questions, as I said. Using a technique, by the way, as he talks about becoming all things to all men, one of the things they really appreciated in this culture was knowledge. Knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Philosophical knowledge. They love to uh, debate and discuss and argue endlessly. And, 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 and they, they put less, or appreciated less, the... the um, Blue-collar type stuff, if you will. So they really elevated philosophical argument and knowledge. And in the way Paul phrases these questions, these 19 questions, he's using a technique they would have appreciated, that they understood, that they looked at and looked up to. And so he's using, uh, in, in, the, in the process of becoming all things to all men, he's using... Uh, he, he's kind of coming alongside them and using a technique that made its point. They got it because of the, uh, the way they looked at philo uh, philosophy in general. And so he, he gives them these questions, these philosophical rhetorical questions. And if that's not enough, he then gives them examples. He goes to the Old Testament. 
He goes to the, to the Torah. He goes to the Old Testament priests and get, uses them as an example. He uses a military metaphor. He uses an agricultural metaphor, all of which they would have appreciated and understood. And then he goes to none other than Jesus Christ himself as his example, as his defense. But again, the question should not be, is it true you're not a real apostle? Because rather than get your support from the churches like all the other apostles do, you have to go and make tents to support yourself. That was one of the, the, the jabs against Paul, uh, that, that he works, him and Barnabas work and make tents, a, a low-level blue-collar type of deal uh, to support themselves rather than get their support. If they, if they were legitimate apostles, they wouldn't have to do that. That's the idea. That was the thinking. And Paul says, that's not the question. Paul, to him, his thinking was much higher and above that. The real question to Paul was this. What can I do within my sphere of influence to further the gospel? That was it. What can I do in how I talk and how I live and how I do things that will enhance the spread of the gospel and the building up of the church? That was the question. And so the answer he gives is, as an apostle, I am free to receive my support from the churches. As an apostle, I could be supported by the churches like the others are. But I choose not to do that. I'm free not to do that. Uh, not to take support, and I have my reasons. But that fact does not make me any less an apostle than the rest. That's the gist of it, okay? You with me so far? Yes? No? Say yes. yes. All right, good. So the ultimate answer, by the way, it's in the same chapter. He gives the ultimate answer ten times. We're going to get to that at the end. What is the ultimate answer that he gives? Ten times in chapter 9, Paul gives the answer to that question. And then he tells us, copy him. And so we'll get to that. But first, I think we need to understand this, this idea, this concept of freedom in Christ, liberty in Christ. What, what do we mean when we're talking about Christian liberty, Christian freedom, whatever you want to call it? And that's because I think in our culture, in the United States, in the West in general, uh, we, we misunderstand this, this idea of, of freedom. Freedom to us means something completely different than what it does to Paul, to the Lord in the scriptures, right? We have freedom of speech. We have uh, freedom of the press. We have the freedom to pursue happiness. Uh, it's written in our founding documents, right? And then uh, today in our culture at this moment, uh, a common phrase is if it feels good, do it. If it makes you happy, any of you ever search for anything on Google? Or as a friend of mine, uh, he's not very computer literate, he calls it the Google. Any of you ever search for anything on the Google? Yeah? No? Am I the only one? Most everybody, right? One fascinating thing about Google, I, I, I do this often, I don't know why I'm weird. Google has it programmed in there that if you go to Google, into the search bar on, on the Google, and you start to type a question, have you noticed that it'll finish your sentence for you? It'll finish your question for you? Have you noticed that? So 
Google can predict what your question is going to be based on what the billions of other people around the planet that are on the Google are searching for. You can try this later. Go to Google and type in, or start typing, why are Christians? And see what Google does to finish that question. It's not good. And in this case, if you type in, if it, two words, if it, the Google will finish that for you, feels good. I did this last night. If you type in, if it makes, Google will finish the question or the statement. You happy. And the, the, the point is that that's our culture, right? That's what freedom is. If it feels good, do it. I'm free to spend my money how I want. I worked for it. I earned it. It's my job. I'm free to spend my time how I want because after I'm done working, I got to have my time. That's my time. I'm free to spend my money how I want. I'm free to spend my time how I want. I'm free to date or marry whomever I want. A while back, a while back I saw on social media someone posted, uh, he says, as an adult, you can have cake for breakfast if you want. There's literally no one monitoring this. <laughs> so, it's true. Uh, but that is really not the concept of true freedom as Paul is talking about it. These days, bumper stickers. If you have a bumper sticker that says YOLO, y'all know what that means, right? You only live once. It goes with those same other concepts or ideas. You have free will. You only live once. Do it if it feels good. You have freedom of choice. And the measuring stick for our culture is that. If it feels good, do it. Then that's true for you. It's good for you. That's your freedom. That's your right. And that was, that's nothing new, by the way. That was the, the, the cultural uh, norm back then as well. And that's why when Paul comes into the scene and he does what he does, it scrambles the eggs in their head and they don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. And so their, their reaction is not, well, maybe we're thinking about this wrong. No, instead it's, Paul's not a, obviously he's not a legit apostle. He's the problem. And it's that way today. My old mentor, Mr. Kirk, his birthday's today. He's 86. He used to say all the time on this topic, when it comes to happiness, happiness depends on happenings, but joy comes from the Lord. He would say that all the time. Happiness depends on happenings. And so if the happenings in your life aren't, aren't so good, then you're not happy. But he says, no, that's not the way it is in the scriptures. Joy comes from the Lord, regardless of the happenings in my life. And the sad reality is lost people are slaves to that. Slaves to ego, slaves to self, slaves to sin. And that's what drives that whole attitude. And the sad result of that reality is this. They're enemies of God. And that is the crux of the matter for Paul. That's the driving truth and force and motivation for Paul behind everything that he does. So I looked at other scriptures, and there's a whole lot of places we could go, but two quick examples. I don't have these for the screen, but Proverbs chapter 14 teaches us that the freedom that's offered by the world is really no freedom at all. It's really slavery. It leads to misery. It leads to death, and it leads to destruction. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. 
Proverbs chapter five. Save this for yourself for later. When you're doing your own private devotions later this week, make a note to read chapter five of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter five. Uh, the idea there in Proverbs 5.5, 5, it's a warning about ungodly relationships, a warning about uh, going with, a, uh, in this case, a woman, but it can go either way, woman or man, who is promiscuous, who is not your spouse. He says in Proverbs 5.5, 5, her feet lead down to death and her steps lead straight to the grave. See, that's the reality of worldly wisdom and worldly freedom. That's where worldly uh, YOLO gets you these days, uh, and, and for, for anyone. So I want you to understand that, and I point that out because it's not a trivial matter for Paul, and it certainly isn't for, for God either. As a matter of fact, next week uh, we'll be in chapter 10, and you can look ahead. Look ahead in chapter 10, and Paul gives us in chapter 10 an example. He says, those Old Testament Israelites... What happened to them in the desert? That happened to them as an example for us, as a warning for us. If you want to pursue your own happiness, that's what's going to happen. And what the Lord did is he judged them and they died. And it says they were laid low in the desert. They were buried there. He killed them by the tens of thousands. So it is not a small matter by any stretch of the imagination with God or with Paul. As a matter of fact, I mentioned this already in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be there in two, three weeks from now, roughly. Paul tells him, he says, the reason some of you people are dead, sick and many are dead, is because of that kind of thing. So it's not a small matter. The issue is eternity. The issue is eternal destination. Paul understood it. God obviously understands it, and both are deadly serious about it. Worldly freedom ends in eternal death. Christian liberty is different. Christian liberty turns that upside down. Christian liberty means that you are free to submit to the will of God. You got that? Christian liberty means that you are free to submit to the will of God. Jesus exemplified this in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says he was sweating drops of what? Of blood when he was praying. And what was he praying? If, if it's possible, let this cut pass. But not my will, but your will. Paul exemplified this. Here in chapter 9, he further uh, uh, exemplifies it and teaches on this when he wrote his letter to the churches in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 is famously known for being where Paul teaches about the fruit of the Spirit. You familiar with that? You've heard of that? So if you're going to look later in your own private time at Proverbs chapter 5, add Galatians chapter 5 to that. Because in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, Paul said it's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision that has anything to do with anything but faith working through love. He said it doesn't matter what your pedigree is, doesn't matter what your upbringing is, doesn't matter what your church is. When he says it's not circumcision or uncircumcision, that's what he's talking about. It's faith working through love. And so he develops that idea, that concept here. 
And if you look at Galatians 5 at the end of the chapter when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, right before he talks about that, Paul says this in Galatians 5 verse 13. He says, you were called to freedom. He's talking to us. He's talking to Christians. Galatians 5 13, you were called to freedom. I would add in parentheses, in Christ. You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. It's one of those one another passages. For the whole law, verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. A few weeks ago, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul said something pretty crazy and outrageous there as well. When he said, don't you realize, Christian, you're not your own. It's not your body. You were bought with a price. Jesus, you're his. You're not your own. Christian liberty, Christian freedom, it's not doing what you want. It's not doing whatever feels good. It's not whatever makes you happy. Those are all lies. It's not taking the attitude, I'm saved, I'm in, I got baptized, my eternal destiny is secure, and the rest of them, you know, they'll have to figure it out. That's the doctrine of demons. That's not the idea. Christian liberty is doing what is best for others to come to Christ and when here, to grow in Christ. That's what you're free to do. That's true liberty. That's what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. It's taking whatever liberties I have in Christ and putting them in the back seat for the sake of the gospel. That's true freedom. And I mentioned this, but the kicker with that is only the redeemed have that freedom. Only you who are born again have that as an option, have that opportunity, can enjoy that liberty. Only the redeemed have the freedom to obey God. Lost people, they don't have that opportunity. They don't have that freedom. They don't have the spirit. They're lost. They're slaves to sin. And they think that they have freedom to choose, but they're deluded. They're spiritually dead. They're spiritually blind. They are enemies of God, it says, just like you all once were. Just like I once was. Enemies of God. And even when they try to do things that are quote-unquote good, give to the poor, help the needy, whatever the case, even go to church, they demonstrate in doing that that God's law is written on their conscience. But when they refuse to repent, they demonstrate their true condition. Enemies of God and they confirm their damnation. And Paul had this unique ability to see through all the fluff and focus on that reality. These people are lost. And so he didn't concern himself with eating meat sacrificed to idols. If it meant that it was going to cause a weaker brother to stumble, he was more than happy to not participate and eat only vegetables. So what he told us at the end of chapter 8. A lost person 
can only choose things that lead to death. They're slaves to it. They have no choice. They have no freedom in the biblical sense. And thankfully, for each one of you who are born again, who are saved, who are in the kingdom, thankfully for you, someone did the uncomfortable thing. They stepped out in faith. They shared the gospel with you. And here you sit. And that's what Paul is calling each one of us to do right now. So Christian liberty, it's understanding that eternity is at stake. Nothing else matters. And we should be more concerned with the eternal destiny of lost souls than we are our own freedoms, our own rights, our own happiness, our own comfort. We should be more concerned with the eternal destiny of lost souls than our own reputation. And that's why Paul said, I'll eat only vegetables if that's what it takes. And so we should copy. We should exercise our Christian liberty in a way that leads people to Christ rather than be an impediment to the gospel. And that's what Paul, the other side of this was he was so hypersensitive to. He did not want to do or say anything that would be an impediment to the gospel that would be get in the way of someone coming to faith or growing in their faith. Love is to be our motivator, is what he tells us, not our happiness. And you, as a Christian, in exercising your Christian liberty, can have an impact on the eternal destiny of a lost person. How amazing is that? You know what Paul's attitude was? If I, this was Paul's attitude. You think about this when you leave here and you go to the Walmart or the restaurant or the wherever you're gonna go, not just today, this week, and you encounter people, the checker outer, the waitress, the coworker in the cube next to you, whomever. Paul's attitude was, if I meet a person and don't introduce them to Christ by sharing the gospel with them and they die, they're gonna be eternally damned and may their blood be on my hands. God forbid. And so you know what he did? This, share the gospel with everyone he encountered. And that is what we're to do when it comes to how do we live this out in public? How do I love? What does that look like? Uh, well, Paul answers that, so I'm glad you asked. How do I love? Paul shows us how. The idea, again, in chapter 8 is I'm free to eat anything. I can eat whatever I want, including meat sacrificed to idols. I understand that God in heaven, Jehovah Jireh, is my provider, and this is from him, and it does not matter what you say this came from or whatever idol you sacrifice this to. Yeah, I, I, I'm free to do that. He said, but my liberty in Christ leads me to abstain if my freedom will lead a weaker brother to sin or might lead a non-believer to re reject the gospel. So here are some practical questions for you to, that come to mind. What does this have to do with us? How do I live this out? What does this look like in public? Well, are you free to listen to contemporary music on the radio? Are you free to get a tattoo? Are you free to watch a certain Hollywood movie? 
Are you free to stay home and do something besides church on Sunday? Are you free to take a vacation instead of a short-term mission trip? There's an unlimited list of questions like that. You get the idea, I'm sure. Are you only concerned with your own eternal destination? If so, there's a problem. Because I want to tell you, if that's your only concern, then you need to question that first. You might be free as a Christian, but will it have a negative impact on your Christian witness? That's the question. Paul said in verse 15, he would rather die than interfere with someone's faith. He would rather die. Extreme? No, because he understood, again, the eternal picture. Verse 19, though I am free, I belong to no man. I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. He didn't refrain from the financial support of the churches or from eating meat, sacrifice to idols, not because he's a legitimate apostle. Again, not the question. He refrained to not be a stumbling block to anyone's faith. For us to live that out in public, we have to live it out in private. You can't expect to be faced with any challenge in public if you haven't done the training in private. And that's what Paul is talking about when he uses uh, some more metaphor analogies that they were very familiar with, the games, the athlete, the boxers, the runners, the crown. They understood that. They were really close to Athens, home of the Olympic Games, but Corinth had its own version of an Olympic Games, very popular in the, in the world at the time. So they understood what he was talking about. But if your private devotion life is lacking, then you will miss opportunities when the Lord gives them to you. And you'll be unprepared to handle challenges when they come. Remember the story uh, in the Gospels? Uh, it's called the Transfiguration. Jesus takes uh, his, his three closest disciples. They go up the mountain, leaves the other nine down at the bottom with the crowds. You know the Transfiguration? Well, if you go into Mark chapter 9 and read what happened after the Transfiguration, it's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Uh, it's, all, it's so amazing, it's almost given to us nonchalantly, like, like as a matter of fact. But what happens is Jesus and the other three are coming down and they hear a commotion. And the commotion is a man brings his demon-possessed son to look for Jesus, who's not there. He's up on the mountain doing the miraculous thing of the transfiguration. And, and so the, the nine that are left, they, they can't cast the demon out. Now, they had already been casting demons out by this point. They can't cast this one out. And so Jesus rebukes the crowd, which includes his disciples. And he talks to the man. And that's where the man famously says, I believe, help my unbelief. We sing a song to that effect every once in a while. Jesus' next words he commands 
the demon to come out. Afterwards, with their tail tucked between their legs, the disciples, when the crowd's gone and they're away, they say, Jesus, why, why couldn't we cast that one out? And you can go look. He says, this one could only be forced out by fasting and prayer, or prayer and fasting. So what does that tell you? Jesus had a prayer life. He was prepared in, through, through his own private prayer life for that event. He, he didn't stop then. At least it doesn't tell us he did, but also through fasting. When did he fast? Well, we don't know. There was something he did all the time. Paul's audience was full of formerly Gentile pagans, the Corinthian church. They were immersed in the Greek Corinthian culture, and that's where they were born and raised, and they were familiar with all aspects of that culture. And so, again, when Paul talks about beating his body into submission, he's talking, he's talking metaphorically. The, the phrasing he's using there is he literally punched himself in the eye till he had black eyes. Now, Paul's not saying that, that that's what he did. He's using illustration to explain to them. Uh, he's talking about training, his private life, his private devotion. He spent time in uh, fasting. He spent time in the word. He spent time learning the culture that he was reaching. He was so hypersensitive to anything that would give the appearance of impropriety that might hinder the gospel, and he would avoid those things freely and cheerfully as that approach would lead more people to Christ. To use another metaphor, he was a gateway rather than a roadblock for the gospel. He was prepared. How do we, how do we put that into practice? Well, just one question comes to mind. One example. What if you're home taking your Sunday afternoon nap And it's a Jehovah's Witness at your door. Are you prepared? They don't know the Jesus that you know. Despite all of the marketing, same for the Mormons. Are you prepared? I don't know this family, but Early yesterday, or Friday, I can't recall. I think it was early yesterday, just outside Colfax. Car crash, two adults and a 10-year-old. Do you think that family was prepared for that? I, I don't know. The question is, are you prepared? Or is your happiness dependent on happenings, only when things are going good. Our number one mission every single day, our underlying motive for everything we do should be decided by answering one question. Will this enhance or impede the spread of the gospel?
So we preach, we teach, we share. Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again. Anything we say or do in our daily walk will either assist that message or hinder it. This week, I saw on social media about a 30-second video clip of a church service. Well, it's called a church service. It was not a church service. There was nothing in that 30 seconds that was said or done by anyone in that video that had anything to do whatsoever with anything written in these pages. And yet, it was a church uh, family. And uh, reading through the comments, one of the people commented, this is the reason I'm not a Christian. What concerns Paul should concern us. It's the much bigger reality of eternity. They asked him about his freedom in, in verse 9 of the last chapter. He says, take care this liberty of yours doesn't somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. He says to the Corinthian church, you're free, but your premise is off. The more important questions is, question is, what freedoms will you give up to enhance the gospel, to help a weaker brother, to see a lost person come to faith? Paul was free indeed, yet he made himself, he said, a slave to all. The world, our world, thinks that's foolish. But Paul understood the bigger picture, what really mattered. So those 19 questions, he answers 10 times. I want to wrap up with these. Look at verse 12. It's the first answer. Why did Paul not use his right to take financial support from the churches? Verse 12. Every last one of these, he answers with a so that. So that. Why? So that. Or because. So that can be replaced with because. So that we, me and Barnabas, Barnabas and I, will not will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. That's why. Verse 17. For is another way of saying because or why. Why in verse 17? Because if I do this voluntarily or freely, I have a reward, he says. And in verse 18, he tells us what is that reward. In verse 19, so that, why? I may win more. In verse 20, so that, why? I might win Jews. In verse 20 again, so that why? I might win those under the law. Verse 21, so that I might win those who are without the law. Verse 22, so I might win the weak. Verse 22, again, so I might save some. Verse 23, why does he do it? For the sake of the gospel. Verse 27, why does he do it? To not be disqualified, to not have his witness destroyed, to not say you're a hypocrite. Not that it'll keep them from saying it, but that it won't be true. Christian liberty, in summary, is not what you're free to do, regardless. It's what you're free to do according to the will of God in light of the eternal destiny of everyone else. You're free to do whatever it takes to help in that matter. That's what mattered most to Paul and should matter most to each one of us as we understand the bigger picture of, reality, uh, of that reality. Do you realize every person you encounter will live forever? Do 
Do you realize that? Do you think about that? Either redeemed sinners, born again people, saved people will live for eternity with God, or lost sinners will die for eternity without God. That is what Paul is concerned about. And if that doesn't motivate you to love them, then maybe you need to start by questioning your own salvation. That was his focus, and it should be ours too. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we sin, disobey, choose our own way, openly rebel, are selfish. We even have encountered people that we know are lost and have not pointed them to Christ. Mm. But Father, we trust that you are in control, that you love them just like you love us in spite of our sin. And so we ask this week, Father, as we encounter people, that you help us to see them in that light. Help us to see them the way you see them. Help us to see them the way Paul demonstrated that he sees them and to compassionately respond with the gospel in love. Father, help us in our unbelief. Help us in our sin. Help us in our lack of knowing. We just ask you to help us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.